Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. All right, so today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Laura Wasser. Laura is a family law expert, author, entrepreneur, and chief of divorce evolution at divorce.com. Despite being a renowned celebrity divorce attorney, representing the likes of Kim Kardashian, Ryan Reynolds, Angelina Jolie, Maria Shriver, and Stevie Wonder, Laura maintains that divorce is the great equalizer. It terrifies everyone. Laura has made it her driving purpose to help people divorce through less combative, more affordable modern solutions, in large part by founding online divorce service, It's Over Easy, which was folded into Divorce.com's expansive platform in 2022. Finding common cause with Divorce.com, Laura also joined as Chief of Divorce Evolution, empowering her to share her passion for easing the devastating toll divorce can take on families and children. For over a decade, Laura has been changing the face of divorce. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family and Bankrupting Yourself. She also hosts the Divorce Sucks and All's Fair podcasts, where she shares her expertise and guides divorcing couples and reclaiming control of their destinies. Laura is a sought after voice on TV and in print on women's issues, the evolution of divorce and entrepreneurship. She's been featured in Vogue, Bloomberg News, Porter Magazine, Elle, Interview, Wall Street Journal, Vanity Fair, and so many more. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Laura Wasser. Hi, Laura. Hi, thank you for that. that sounds, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. How does it feel hearing it back? For, for our listeners, I, I read the bio with the guests so they can just feel all the good things they've done. It feels good. I'm tired, actually, as a result of that. You're like, I have worked hard. I do a lot. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, before we dive into the meat of the show, which is really about your 20s, I like to start with a bit of like a fun question. So could you tell me something new that you learned this past week? It could be anything from like a fun fact to like a conversation you had that made you think differently, maybe a book, whatever comes to mind, something you learned this past week. So this past week, my kids, I've got two sons went back to school. And I mean, I guess I kind of knew this, but as you'll see, parenting is all about learning things. And I have my older one and he's now a senior in high school. And my younger one just started yesterday at the middle school campus. So they're now on the same campus for the first time in many years. So the older one drove the younger one to school today and they just called and they're on their way home. And I didn't, it's not like a new learning thing, but it just is interesting to me to have like now two, my younger one's 12, he's almost 13, but I'm going to have basically like two teenagers, two kids at the upper campus at our school. And it's really eye opening. And I really don't think it hit me until this week when they started going. So that's, the new fun fact for me. 
<laughs> I like it. That's very exciting. It's so sweet that you can have like two brothers at the same campus. Are they close to each other? Are they, because I feel like five years is also a great age gap. So like I have a little cousin, I think of her like a sister. The five years is perfect. You know, it's like, they're not annoying. They, you just love them. What, how has that age gap been for them? I think sometimes maybe the younger one's kind of annoying for the older one, but it really is. I mean, I I have a younger brother and he's three years younger than I am. And I'm I'm 54. I'm still getting over it. Like, I can't even believe that this interloper came into my perfect life. And I was worried, you know, my kids have different dads. I was worried about how my older one at four and a half would take to having a new kid, particularly given my experience. And he has been the best big brother. They are really close. They really love each other a lot. And so that's, I'm very lucky. I think you're right. I think a little bit more time is really key. Yeah, that's awesome. It's good to hear they're so close. I agree. The three-year thing, it, it rubs people the wrong way forever. You never let go of it. You're like, you still bother me. But I'm so glad to hear they're so close. That's so lovely. And like you said, even despite like, you know, having different dads or whatever that situation is, like, they really care about each other and love each other, which is awesome. So let's dive in. Obviously, I read your bio. You are a well-known, successful attorney with a hint of entrepreneurship, a hint of being a podcast host. But when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I will, before you answer, I will say, everyone says they wanted to be a lawyer. It is the most random thing, but everyone I interview was like, oh yeah, I always thought being a lawyer would be just the coolest thing ever. So do you fall in that camp or, or did you not realize? Not at all. I did not think I would be a lawyer, and I absolutely did not think that I would be a family law attorney, which for your listeners is really a euphemism for a divorce lawyer. But no, I, when I was a teenager, and even in my mid-20s, I started law school, but even then I wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I would either do something in fashion or in like travel journalism. I, I did a year in Switzerland when I was 16, and I never got like the travel bug out of my blood. I've always loved fashion. I really only went to law school because my parents were like, okay, we'll continue to support you as long as you're in academia. So I was like, I don't ha didn't have the grades or the wherewithal for med school. So that was back in the 90s. So I went to law school. I was a rhetoric major, which they did not have at very many colleges at the time. But I went to Cal, I went to UC Berkeley, and I loved it. As a matter of fact, I graduated from UC Berkeley in 1991. And then this past May, I did the commencement speech for the rhetoric department, 2021 and 2022 graduating class. So 30 years later, they had me come back and speak to the department from which I graduated. And it was really, really cool on point with who your listeners are just talking to young people about the experience and being in college at the time and then going into something. And you know, one of the main things I said to them and that I would say to you guys is like, it's okay if in your 20s, you don't know what you want to be when you grow up. I didn't. And I think I ended up okay. I mean, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. So, <laughs> But it's okay, as long as you are really living in the present and making the most of the experiences, because certainly everything that I did in my 20s impacts what I do today. Absolutely. Can you tell me more about what is a rhetoric major? So like you said, you went to Berkeley how did you find this department and why did you major in that? What did you like about it? Because it's different than travel journalism and fashion. Yes, it's very different, but I always, I did always like to write. So I thought maybe I'd do something in travel magazines or fashion magazines or whatever. And I 
one of the reasons I was drawn to rhetoric is I think even at that early age, I realized that you could continue to be a bit of a dilettante. So rather than like being an English major or a history major or even an art, art history major, if you're a rhetoric major, you're looking at what the argument that the artist or the poet or the filmmaker, I took a class called the rhetoric of avant-garde poetry. What was the poet trying to convey? What was the argument that he or she was making? The rhetoric of Preston Sturgis romantic comic films. And so we watched a bunch of films and it wasn't just about like, oh, he wanted the actors to do this, or this was the lighting or whatever. It was about what was the argument that was the, the message that they were trying to give, even in pointillism, if you're studying a painting. So it was very cool. And it really, again, not knowing I wanted to be a lawyer, does lend itself well to law, because particularly in family law, what we're doing is creating a narrative. We're telling a story. Obviously, the most part of my job is being kind of resolution oriented and how do we figure this out and how do we make it work? But if you don't figure it out and if you end up litigating, you have to be able to convey a narrative to your judicial officer of this is how this is and this is why my client should get this or pay this or not pay this or be awarded this. I love that. I love how interdisciplinary that major is too. It sounds like you were able to take so many cool classes, like even like a film class and think about like the real intent behind it. Art classes. I mean, you got to do so much. And then there was also a component of it. Like there was a certain amount of credits that you had to take in like public speaking or debate. And I had been on the debate team in high school. You know, the art of the argument, even when I was like, you know, vying to get my first car when I was in high school or maybe extend my curfew because everyone got to stay out later than me, I would like show up with my legal pad and my notes and I would outline my argument and present it. And like my parents would tell me like, there was a lot of times where we were like so against whatever it was that you presented such a good argument. We just didn't have the heart to say no. So we let you stay out an extra hour. I love it. You were, but you were probably convincing even back then. I mean, I could imagine you were like, these are the reasons. Like, I feel like a lot of really ambitious kids like would make a deck to convince their parents to do something or like have their notepad. I feel like that will resonate for sure. That's awesome. And so during that time when you were at Berkeley, I did a little research. I saw we taught aerobics and worked at a nightclub. Can you fill me in on some Berkeley days? What were the jobs? Well, it was even... It was even pre-Berk. So even when I was in high school, I got certified to teach aerobics. It was because I was just very active always. And I figured I might as well be getting paid for it if I'm doing aerobics anyway. I'll show up and teach a class. Also, I'm not that coordinated. So if I was teaching the class, they just had to make the same like dorky moves that I made. So that worked good for me. And then in terms of, I mean, I my first two years of college before I transferred to Cal, I was in NYU. So I was in NYU taking courses and whatever. And, you know, there was a bunch of kids that had come from Los Angeles and NYU is not much of a campus. You're living in the city, which is the coolest thing ever. But it also enables you. I had like, I think, a a 6 a.m. aerobic class that I would teach. Then I'd go home and go to sleep, take my classes in the afternoon and then go work the door of this club. And then when I got off, like all the people had been in the club, then I would be in the club partying and then I'd go home and then open up the, the, the aerobic club at six. It was Definitely something you cannot do in your 50s, but you totally do in your 20s. Wow, what a fun person. I want to be your friend in college. I wanted the money. And my parents were like, we don't want you to worry about money. We will support you. Just get good grades. And I was like, okay. And then I went and got a couple jobs anyway because I wanted more money. Like I just needed to be able to shop and go and party. So Gotcha. So that was the root of it. It was less so of like supporting yourself and more so just like, I want to be able to do what I want to do and be like self-sufficient. And so that's why you got these jobs which is actually a very good lesson also for your listeners, particularly young women, which is, you know, having a means by which to support yourself always 
it's super important. If people ask me one of the most important messages, it's that because it provides a sense of security that you don't have to compromise in other parts of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And spoken from a divorce attorney, people will listen to what you have to say. <laughs> like when you say things, it's like, dun, 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 you know, you've seen it. Okay, so you graduate from Berkeley, you're a rhetoric major, and then you go to law school. What was that conversation like? You said you didn't even know at that point if you even wanted to be a lawyer, but your parents were going to support you. Tell me more about that. And I know you went to LMU, so you were staying in LA. What was the law school experience life like and, and why go? Well, my last semester at Berkeley, I was actually writing my honors thesis on the rhetoric of Margaret Atwood's interfeminist something, something like it was about, it was a feminist thing, but I was writing it from Madrid, Spain, because I was dating a guy that lived in Madrid. And so I actually was communicating with my thesis advisor back and forth and writing it from Spain. And I was making my law school application. I came back to Berkeley, walked the line, did my graduation in 91. And then I went back to Spain and started applying to all these law schools and knowing that I probably did want to come back to California and live in LA. So I applied to a bunch of law schools. And when I got into Loyola, I came back to California with my then boyfriend. And after my second year of law school, we got married that summer, which was, I think, 93. And then after the final year of law school, and after I took the California bar exam, the marriage was over. So it was a very interesting time and particularly given what I went into, like when I, I was clerking and when I went into my dad, cause I was clerking for his law firm, I was like, can I just work for you while I wait for my bar results? And he's like, we don't do nepotism here. You're going to have to find a job somewhere else. And I was like, dude, I've got a dog. I've got a car payment. Like, please help me out. He's like, okay, fine. And I did my own divorce at the time because it was my first case that I was able to do very amicable. We were probably just too young. We were 25. And it was what really instilled in me, especially moving forward, because at the firm, I always was representing kind of wealthy individuals in the entertainment industry or banking, whatever. But I was young. I was 25, 26 as a new attorney. And I was like, I went to law school and English is my first language. What do people that don't have that higher education or don't speak English as their first language, how are they navigating this really scary process? I mean, I'm from here. My folks are from here. My friends from here. What if you're not and you're going through this process and the forms are so confusing and the courthouse is so confusing and the words and the jargon is so confusing? Isn't there an easier way? So that really stuck with me. And as I was learning how to be a family law attorney, you know, maybe 10 years in, I was like, there has to be a better way of doing it hence the book in 2013, and then it's over easy, which as you said, has now been folded into divorce.com. It doesn't always have to be such an expensive process. It's going to be hard no matter what, because it's heartbreaking, but the legal and the financial of it, I have to imagine we can do better. Yeah. No, and it's so appreciated that you are thinking about impact way after you've made it. And it, that experience stuck with you. You know, it's so funny. I feel like when you go to school, you know how they always talk about how research only gets you so far. You have to really go out there and experience something to learn it. Like I remember in business school, people would always say to me, you know, you can read these textbooks, you can, you know, understand finance, but really go start a business and understand. And I feel like you really like took that and ran with it. You were like, I'm going to get married and get a divorce. Like <laughs> I will experience this and I will make myself my first client. Like, I just think that's hilarious because that's kind of the narrative, at least I experienced in business school was like, go do it yourself. And you're like, I will find a man. I will then divorce him. I will then do my own divorce. And then I will be a good lawyer. Well, it's funny. Like when I was a young, and I, and this is kind of an odd field. It's hard to break into it. You know, most big law firms don't have a family law department. 
So if, if I hadn't gotten my foot in the door at my father's firm, I probably would have had a difficult time. But as a result, I was one of the younger people practicing at the time. I didn't have a lot of peers. There were either people that were like 10 years older than me, but I was once in a settlement conference with a retired judge, the other lawyer, my client. I was representing a dad and we were fighting about custody. And the other lawyer said like, and I was young still. And the other lawyer said, I don't understand why Laura gets to have a say in this. I mean, she's the only person here that's never had children. And I was like, well, I think you're the only person here that hasn't been divorced. And yet you seem to be here. And she's like, well, I'm happily married. But it is true, like having that basis of experience. And now as I've gotten older, like, you know, if you haven't ever owned, purchased or owned a home before, if you haven't ever had kids before, your life experience, and I think this carries through to almost every field, really does help you in that field in terms of being able to connect with other people and being able to, you know, commiserate with other people. So I tell people all the time, I say, you know, I've been through this. I was married when I was young. I've got two kids with two different dads, neither of whom I was married. All of these kind of personal experiences, I think, enable you to kind of see how other people are approaching whatever it is, but certainly in something so interpersonal like divorce. Yeah, it's just so helpful when you have that experience. Even like you said, buying a house. If you're trying to figure out assets, you're like, I know what it's like to actually buy a house and split up a house. And you just, you've been there. Understanding custody with kids. Yeah, I'm sure you, you understand all of that. Okay, so you graduate law school. You are freshly divorced, as we've come to find out. And then you said you were at your dad's practice. Can you tell me a little bit about like what those early years, right out of school, I imagine 26, 27-ish, Laura, what were those periods like? Any interesting cases? How did you like law? Things like that. So I liked it. I was, you know, I didn't know that I would stay at the firm forever because it was kind of like an in-between gig. And then I started doing it and I really liked it. And one of the reasons that I liked it then and have stayed with it is because you learn so much about human nature. I mean, it really is. It's different from any other kind of law. You know, people like entertainment law, it's so glamorous. Entertainment law, yes, you get to work with famous people, but you're basically just doing contracts and negotiating with studios and everything else. This is really entertainment law because I get to meet those people. And again, not just famous people, whether it's, you know, bankers or teachers or athletes or musicians, you hear their story. They tell you everything. It's so raw. The things people have told me that I'm like, I didn't need to know that for your case, but okay. You get very, very close with them in a very, very short period of time. You use this information, as I said before, to kind of form a narrative, get the case resolved, hopefully by virtue of settlement, and you move through it. And I, I just loved it. And I did realize even early on, I was pretty good at it. I had a good rapport with clients at a firm where we were representing a lot of high net individuals. They did have some younger clients that were in their 20s, 30s. And they didn't have, you know, most of the guys here were like old Jewish men in suits. They would bring me in to meet with like the young pop stars or to meet with a football player or something, people that were younger. And they could explain it to me in words that I can understand. Somebody comes in with a tattoo on their neck and everyone else is like, you know, and I'm like, dude, let's get you a scarf, you know? So if we go to court, the judge doesn't freak out. And he's like, okay, that's a good idea. So I really liked it. I liked becoming close to people on that level. I liked being able to tell the story. And so I said, can I, can I stay? I didn't work with my dad that much early on at all. I worked with one of his partners who's now deceased. And he really taught me a lot of how to do this and how to figure it out and how to, I speak at law schools a lot. So a lot of people that are probably your listeners age that are in law school to build relationships in the community, to really, you know, have your word when you, you know, one lawyer once said to me, you know, you and I are going to be practicing a lot longer than you and this client who's going to go off and live her life. 
you and I have to have a rapport. I have to know that when you tell me something, it's true. You know, I have to be able to respect you and I have to be able to know that you're a person of honor and so on and so forth. And that resonated with me too, because I still practice with certain people that I knew back in the 90s. I know they're a good person, one of the good guys, one of the bad guys. Judicial officers that we appear before, they know, okay, the Wasser firm has, you know, good, honest attorneys. They do things a certain way. So all of those kind of early things that you learn, I was very lucky to be able to do at my dad's firm, which then as I stayed longer, I kind of took over and now I'm the managing partner of my firm, which obviously there's been a lot of changes as people grew up, died out, whatever. Now, when I hire young attorneys who want to learn how to do it the way that we've always been famous in our industry for doing it, that's kind of what I look for. People who are able to relate, but yet still apply the facts to the law. It's a fine line between getting too personal. You know, the other thing I learned early on is you get to know these people really well. They tell you everything about themselves, weird sexual proclivities, things that happened to them as kids, when their parents went through a divorce, triggers, whatever. And then the case is over and you maybe see them at dinner or a club or whatever, six months. Don't go running over and be like, oh my God, hi, you represent like one of the most miserable times of their life. So you just kind of go, yo, you know, and they're like, hey, always very appreciative, but not necessarily like wanting to hang. And that was a hard lesson to learn early on as well, but totally get it now. Yeah, it's kind of like doctors too. Like I know, so my mom's a doctor and she's kind of like, you kind of don't say hi until they say hi to you. And like, typically if you had like a surgery, it's like, we don't love that time of our life. And so it's kind of the same thing. Like I think there's certain professions you really show up for people in hard times. They're not excited to necessarily see you. Right, because you saw them at their most vulnerable and now they're kind of having a moment and they're like, what are you doing here? Ew, like I don't want to have anything to do with you right now. Like I said, respectful and appreciative, not wanting to be your best. Totally. When you think about hiring, so obviously now you've made made it all the way to the top, if people don't know, which I already shared. How do you think about who you hire, especially through the lens of knowing that when you started at your dad's firm, you didn't totally know if you were even going to like it? Like, are there certain personality traits that you look for? Are there certain like work ethic elements? Are there certain like you know, level, you said this is all about human nature, maybe like an understanding of humans and psychology. Like if you had to kind of narrow it down to what you look for, for like a a young attorney, what are the things like a 27 year old fresh out of ex law school? What are the things that you look for? I definitely look for a connection, how they connect with people, whether it's me or other people, how I, I look at their resume. If they have any kind of family law background, that's always helpful. I look less at where they went to school and what their GPA was than what their extracurricular stuff might have been. You know, I I don't think I've hired anybody in the last five or six years that hasn't done some kind of pro bono or training with one of the nonprofit family law foundations in Los Angeles. There's four or five and we support them and give back to them. But that's how I always say people are like, how do I get a foot in the door in family law? Go work for one of those. There's there's the Los Angeles Center for Law and Justice. There's Levitt and Quinn. There's the Harriet Buhigh Center for Family Law. Go get some experience. Go if there's anybody that's ever clerked, you know, for a judge or whatever during their time. You know, like it's like an internship in law school. Those are people. People that kind of get it a little bit. I've also hired people that had like a minor in psychology or something because those people, like you said, they have a, an ability to connect. They get it. They understand how that is important. People say all the time to me, you're kind of like a shrink. And I said, yeah, except for that I'm not and I'm not qualified. So when you start telling me these things and I'm billing you by exorbitant hourly rate, you might want to be talking to a mental health professional who has actually qualified to deal with those things as opposed to me because I'm kind of a hot mess. (laughs) 
You're like, I already, I did the divorce thing. I'm not the one you should be talking to. Go talk to a married therapist, not me. Exactly. Somebody happy. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. That's so funny. When you think about the people that'll do well in law, so less of what you look for, but if like, let's say there's like a 24 year old right now reflecting on their life and they live in New York, they like have a job. They're like, I don't know, but maybe I want to go to law school. What is your advice for that person about if they should go to law school and maybe even if family law is for them? Like, what are the things that you think that they would need to be happy in law? So, I mean, law is such a broad category. There's people that go to law school because they love like the constitution and they want to see how it applies to like legislature and whatever. That wasn't me. If you're that person and you really are interested in that, you'll love that aspect of law school. You know, if you, if you love business and you want to figure out how to do C-corps and do taxes and whatever, also not me, then that person would like law school. The thing that, that law school did and everybody says, oh my God, there's so much work and there's so much reading. What I think is most important, and I think this is pretty much any kind of law, but certainly any kind of litigation as opposed to just transactional, is the idea that there's two sides to every story and that there's different interpretations of facts as they apply to the law. And if that's something that's interesting to you, you know, we we read, you know, I remember in torts, which is like an unlawful touching, a story This always, I always remember this. It was like a kid, a little kid, and he was riding backwards on a vacuum cleaner at his mom when his mom was cleaning. He was like a toddler. And somehow the vacuum cleaner like sucked up his penis and it caused him to have like major damage and surgeries and whatever. And the question is, what was the proximate cause of the injury? Was it the vacuum was designed faultily? Was it the mother was negligent because she shouldn't have been letting him play on the vacuum cleaner with his penis out? I mean, I don't know. So you look at, there's two sides to every story. Obviously, the vacuum cleaner company is like, well, that's not what our vacuum cleaner was made for, ma'am. You know, And then she's like, but there's something in my house that's dangerous. Even if it wasn't his penis, it could have been a finger, an earlobe. Having that understanding of two sides to every story, or maybe more than two, and applying a factual situation to what the laws are. If that's the kind of person you are and you're somebody that really likes to kind of think about and analyze those things, then being a lawyer would be interesting to you, I think. I like it. You've given me such a clear visual. I just have to say, like, your storytelling abilities are are next level. I really imagine that whole thing just really playing. <laughs> so thank you. Whenever my kids were when they were little, I was like, stay away from the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> is that like a common story they say in law school? Because it would be funny if there's like a running joke where like all lawyers like have like very old fashioned vacuums. Like that would be funny. Yeah. I feel like I've talked to some people about it. It may be a certain age where they're like, yeah, the vacuum cleaner story. Like there's there's certain common things like there's the peppercorn. Like, you know, that's like a, a, like a piece of pepper. And they're like, what's this worth? It's a peppercorn. That's an example that's used a lot in law, but I don't. And then there's one where like an anvil falls out of a window and hits somebody on the head. And what's the proximate cause of that? So I don't know if that's one. There've been a couple of people I've run it by that say they've heard of it. And then a couple are like, we're not familiar with the penis vacuum cleaners tort story. Sorry. <laughs> You're like, it was just your law school and your teacher. It is funny though, how like certain industries, everyone kind of gets the same fable. Like it's kind of like when you all grow up and go to like religious school or whatever, everyone knows about like the frogs falling out of the sky or whatever, you know, we all have that shared experience. Okay, so you're you're crushing it at this law firm. You're finding out you really love it. And then you decide to write a book and share all of what you know. Why write a book? Were you approached? Was it your idea all along? Did you always want to write a book? Talk me through that in 2013. 
Because at that point, let's see, how old was I in 2013? Early 40s? I feel like I had a lot of friends by that time that had gone through divorces, okay? So like in your 20s and 30s, you get married. And then what starts happening, I think in your late 30s, early 40s, is you start getting people getting divorced. So first you're like a bridesmaid at every wedding, whatever. And then all of a sudden they're getting divorced. So I would be going out a lot and meeting people and talking to people. And always I would get questions. And there were people that were like my age. So they weren't really clients of the firm because they were just normal people. And so I would always be like, okay, here's what you need to know. You need to know that in family law, there's basically four corners to every divorce, not including custody if you're talking about kids, but you're looking at what you have and what you owe and what you earn and what you spend. So those are the four corners. And once you have all that information, then you can figure out whether you're dividing assets, dividing debt, what kind of support there's going to be, if there's going to be alimony or maintenance being paid, spousal support. Those are the four things you need to know. And people are like, God, you explain it so like well, like we can understand it. It makes so much more sense and whatever. And I was thinking, God, we're charging so much money per hour to talk to these wealthy clients. Wouldn't it be great if we could just kind of lay things out with funny anecdotes? I think one of the beginning stories is I represented a guy that was in a band and he called me one morning or I called him and said, like, we got the counter proposal for what you've tried to settle. Your wife's attorney just sent it. Do you want to go through it? And I hear him like going, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, did you, are you just taking a bong hit? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, you can't take a bong hit when you're on the phone with your divorce attorney. And he kind of goes, <sighs> what better time is there to take a bong hit? And I was like, kind of true. <laughs> You're like, he's a smart guy. Right. Making it relatable. Having, I think, another thing about divorce laws, knowing that it's not so taboo that other people have gone through it, that you're having a common experience and how it feels like the first night your kids sleep at your ex's house and they're not there. And then how it feels the second night when you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And then the third night when you go on a date and bring somebody home because they're not there, you know, all of those things that people experience telling them about them in a book. So I kind of came up with a short thing and then we pitched it and it actually did really well in terms of, you know, a bidding war from the publishing houses. And I had a good time writing it. People have asked since, like, do you want to do another book? I don't. I had one book in me. That was the book I wanted to do. I don't really need to do another book. But after that book, you know, the ideas that were in there totally lended themselves to doing the online divorce company, the It's Over Easy, which again, then really parlayed well into the bigger company, Divorce.com, whom I work with now. And they're just awesome. I mean, their platform is just so amazing. And having other things, resources for people, whether it's like a custody portal or an expense sharing thing, that to me would be the next step in like kind of pioneering how divorce should be. Because I don't know about your parents. I mean, my parents went through a divorce. They did it the right way. But I talked to so many parents and it's so, it has changed so little in the past 30, 40, 50 years. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't still be so difficult legislatively, legally, whatever. It's always, like I said, always going to be hard because it's scary and it's heartbreaking. And it doesn't matter if you're the grocery bagger at, you know, pavilions or if you're, you know, super famous, if you're not worried about who's going to walk the red carpet with you, you're worried about who's going to go to the company picnic with you. It's just the same thing. Are my kids going to be okay? Either you're not going to fly private anymore, or you're not going to be able to park in the facility anymore because you don't have the money for that. Just lop off some zeros, but everybody has the same fears. Wouldn't it be better if it was just a little more approachable so you could get through the difficult legal part and focus on just repairing your psyche so that you could raise healthy kids and be healthy yourself and do what needs to be done in any stage after any kind of a breakup. Yeah, no, it's just so powerful to hear you talk about it because you've seen both sides. I think a lot of people can only speculate, 
you hear a lot of the times, you know, not that many people get so close to that multiple zeros category. And so I think what's so special is like when you've been there, you've seen it and you can say it's the same on both sides. It carries so much weight. And I think that's what I really admire is that you've been there, you've seen it, not many people get to, and you're like bringing it back and humanizing it and kind of being like, no, it's all really the same, you know, because I don't think there's not many people that can do what you do because they don't all get that level of access. Right. Now, you know, the magazine that they like say stars, they're just like us. I don't know if it's us or people and they show people like putting money in a parking meter or whatever. That's, it really is true. I mean, it just, it's all relative, of course, but it really is true. Even if you're gorgeous and famous and beautiful and accomplished, you're still scared if you're getting a divorce. You still worry about how your kids are going to be and, and who's going to be taking care of them when you're, when they're with your ex. And that's the kind of stuff we all think about. And it is very important that I say divorce is the great equalizer. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you're most excited about with divorce.com? Or maybe it's not something you guys have on the roadmap, but you'd love to see evolve. Like like you talked about, not much has changed and it's really sad and divorce is so hard. Is there something that like you get really excited about? Is it a resource that you'd love to see developed? Is it a piece of an app? Is it a certain conversation you'd love to have on the air? Like, what do you think is the thing that you're most excited about to hopefully like change this, this stickiness of divorce? I think just education and communication about it. And that's why in it, like one of the things when I was, you know, talking to divorce.com, I was like, I really want to still have our blogs. And I really want to still have, if we do video blogs, the podcast, it's all about shared human experience and kind of normalizing it so that it doesn't necessarily just make it normal or okay. I'm not like, I'm not a divorce monger. I'm not saying everyone should do it. It's great. I'm just saying it doesn't make sense to stay in a stagnant or miserable relationship when you could move on to something for both of you. And look, the fathers of both of my sons and I are family. We're still friends. We all have Thanksgiving together. We all get along. I probably speak with each of them at least once a day but we're not in a romantic relationship anymore and that's okay. And now we have romantic relationships with other people. Our kids are well adjusted. It makes sense. I want people to hear that story. I want people to share that story so that we have healthier kids and we have healthier relationships. I mean, it's not just people that go through miserable, ugly, terrible divorces. It's also people that stay in toxic relationships. And I don't just mean toxic God forbid domestic violence and abuse and drug abuse and alcoholism and gambling issues and all that. I'm just talking about people that aren't growing and evolving together. That doesn't make sense. I feel like as humans, we deserve so much better than that, as do our kids. So if it's not working, what about a situation where you have a conversation, whether it be in therapy or, and you say, we're still going to be a family. We're just not going to be a family that's all living under the same roof. And isn't that better for children to be able, even if you're going between two homes, who made it that it's supposed to be that you stay together till death to us part? Death to us part was created when we only lived till we were 32 and then we died. I mean, you know, that it's a lot easier when you die when you're 32. When you're living into your 90s, death to us part, if it doesn't make sense, I feel like there's a lot of wasted time that's going on and people that are not really flourishing. And that's what we're trying to convey with divorce.com. There's a better way of doing it. I say to people all the time, if you have kids with someone, you're going to know them forever. So there's no, they're not going away. So you can wish that they get hit by a bus or you can develop a way of dealing with them that's going to be better for you and your kids. Because it's not just when they age out at 18, you're going to be walking down the aisle with them, going to graduations with them, in the delivery room with them afterwards, figure out a way to get along with this person. And I know it's possible because I do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good point too. It's like just being married to them isn't going to only keep them in your life. You're going to have kids with them. You'll be in their life no matter what. So it doesn't matter either way. Just be happy. On that note, so there's a lot of 20-somethings that are listening to this that I'm sure are in relationships where maybe they aren't growing together and they aren't evolving, but they might not be married yet. Um, Or maybe they are, maybe they aren't. What is your advice? You talked, you mentioned the word flourishing, which I think is like a, a buzzword for sure in psych. Like, are there things that you would say you should end it? Is there any advice you have for someone that's in a relationship that might not feel like they're flourishing and you're like, eh, it's just not going to work out. You shouldn't stay in it. What are your thoughts on that? I think that for any relationship, if you're not communicating well, then you're not going to be able to grow together. And so I would say that when things are good, and this is for people living together, people dating, people married, while things are good, maybe spring for a couple of counseling or therapy sessions so that not so much because this person, this third party is going to tell you how to do it, but so that you can develop tools so that when things aren't good, and inevitably you're going to have hard times in any relationship, it would be weird if you didn't, you know how to work through those times. And if you really, if it's really not going anywhere or it's not going where you want it to go, I'm sure you know people who one of the parties really, really is waiting for that ring and when is he or she going to ask and when, when can we be more serious? And then the other person just isn't there for whatever reasons, but it's not being talked about because they're just hoping on every trip, maybe they'll find a ring box in the luggage or whatever talk about things, figure it out. And then of course, what I have to tell you, if you're dear 20 something prenups, get a prenup, get a prenup, get a cohabitation agreement, not necessarily because, oh my God, end all be all, whatever, at least have the conversations that you would be having if you were going to have one, because too many people don't realize they say, oh, it's so unromantic having a contract for our marriage. Dude, you have a contract for your marriage. Whatever state you live in, what you, then you're getting married in, there is a marital contract when you get married. So when you've got your florist and you've got your venue and you've got your string quartet and your DJ and your cake maker and your dressmaker and you sign all those contracts, the most important contract is the one that you enter into as you walk down the aisle and get married. And most people don't even know what the terms of that contract are. They come to me 10 years later and they're like, what do you mean I have to share my 401k with him? Well, what do you mean I have to pay her part of my salary every month for spousal support? How do you not know that when you're entering into a contract? And by the way, same thing when you move in with somebody. You've got your lease agreement, but there also may be certain things in your state, palimony for people who live together. So I'm not trying to like totally quash any intimacy or romance. What I'm trying to say is if you're adult enough to be in a relationship where you're living together, getting married, procreating and bringing another person into this life, you're old enough to be able to have a conversation with somebody about, hey, what kind of credit card debt do you have right now? Or, hey, are we going to be staying on one of your buddy's futons when we go on this trip or are we springing for a hotel? Or, hey, do you have enough miles for us to both bump up to business class? That's okay to talk about. And it's better to get it out of the way early on because, That, like I said, it enables you to have a practice in which you guys are participating in communication, which will serve you well throughout the entire relationship. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think even mentioning this cohabitation stuff, I think people don't talk about that enough because we hear prenup, but we don't always hear cohabitation agreement. Someone phrased this once and I loved it. It was like, you know, when you get married, either if you get divorced, the government decides for you or you can decide how it works out. And like, it's almost like someone's going to decide, do you want it to be the government or do you want it to be in your control? It's almost like why you do a will. It's like someone is going to have to decide. Like if you follow through with death or divorce, someone will make a decision. Assets will be divided. Wouldn't you rather have control? Exactly. And it's not, I mean, look, even if you don't do a will, 
you're still going to die one day. I'm not saying you're going to get divorced one day, but I am saying that if you do get divorced and look, the statistics are pretty high that you may, might as well have it out there. But I will say that the prenuptial agreements I've done, the couples who have discussed things and come to the table reasonably and having these kind of eyes wide open conversations, they end up staying married longer. It's a good test. It's a good early test of like, are you willing to communicate? Are there any resources that you recommend? I mean, it might be divorce.com, but like, let's say someone is just like, you know, a struggling 26-year-old about to move in with their boyfriend and they're listening to this podcast and they're like, okay, so I need to do a cohabitation agreement before I move in with him next month. What do I do? Is it like putting together a document and like six bullets of like what we agree to? Is it there a resource you recommend for someone that's listening to this and is now like, okay, I'll do it. What is like the kind of quick and easy way you recommend? Not so much for cohabitation agreements because those are a little bit trickier just because there's not any real live law that applies unless one person promises the other. But if you're both renting or if you're both paying rent, then you might want to have bullet points. I do believe it's important to talk about things. And frankly, I kind of believe it's important to reduce things to writing. It just provides a certain clarity, I think. Prenups are a little bit tough in terms of resources. And we're working at divorce.com to perfect our prenup service. The problem is that with prenups, this is very interesting. You can get divorced without having an attorney representing you. You can be what's called in pro per, you're representing yourself, but you can't sign an enforceable prenup without a lawyer in almost every state. Okay. So we can't offer that as an online do-it-yourself service yet, but what we're trying to come up with is a situation and we're very close to it where we provide what the bullet points are and the things you have to work through. And then we refer you to attorneys in your city or state who can help kind of bless the agreement, go through it, explain the law to you so that it will be valid and enforceable. What is amazing to me, and I realized this when we started It's Over Easy in 2018, and now even more so in 2022 with Divorce.com, the resources that are out there are mind-blowing, okay? If you just go on your website for whatever state you live in and you look up family law or property law, you will find out, are you living in a community property state? There's only nine of them, or is it an equitable distribution state? And what does that mean? And what we've tried to do at divorce.com is put all of that information into one place on the website. So it's kind of like one-stop shopping. You don't have to be getting divorced. You can go online and get information. But to be honest, that information's out there. You may have to dig a little bit more if you don't want to go on divorce.com. It's out there. Find it. Find those resources. And if you are someone who's married and you're looking for resources and you can't necessarily get it specifically enough online, go to your state bar association, ask for referrals in family law and make a couple of calls. Most of us will be willing to have at least one consultation, whether it's in person, over the phone, via Zoom with you, just for informational purposes and just tell you kind of what we think of your situation. And it's so helpful. Almost every time I have an initial conversation with somebody, they're like, I feel so much better because why? Knowledge is power. Once you talk to somebody that's applying your facts to the law, you're like calmer because you realize, okay, this is, this is how it is. It's going to be okay. I'm moving through this. I may need a minute, but I, at least now I know what it might look like. Yeah. No, that's and it's so cool to hear that you guys are building that at divorce.com. And I think it makes a lot of sense. People feel calmer when they take action. That's that's a lot of where anxiety stems. Someone once said, like, anxiety is when things live in your head and you don't write them down. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Like, anxiety is when you just don't take action. So it's great to hear that the bar has those resources. You've mentioned before that you don't necessarily believe in marriage as an institution, potentially. Is that correct? What are your thoughts on that? Invite me to your weddings. I like weddings. My thoughts are that People should make decisions that work best for them. I love a good commemorative ceremony of your love and of your union and of your commitment. I totally believe in all that. I'm not super down with the laws that surround 
marriage. And so I wouldn't want to enter into that kind of a contract for me. I get that other people do. As long as you're aware of what the terms of the contract are, go for it. I just am not, I don't like the law being involved in my romantic life. I love it. I think find it so refreshing. It's like what Oprah did, you know, she and Stedman are just partners and they split things and she's happy. Yeah. Um, it's just, I feel like it's always so interesting to talk to like the stylist about where they get their clothes or to talk to like the athlete about like what they watch for sports. It's like, I want us a divorce attorney if they want to get married or not. And it's just interesting to hear you do say that. So I just wanted to bring that up. All right. Well, I have, I have one final question for you. I could keep picking your brain, but you obviously mentioned the importance of prenups, but is there other one maybe overarching piece of advice for all 20-somethings across the world? We asked all our guests this. So yeah, is there one piece of advice you can give? Okay, there has to be two. So the first one is, and again, I like I said this to one of the kids who are graduating from Cal, like, it's going to be okay. Like you just take a minute. You don't have to like know exactly what you want to be right now. If you're in your 20s, and I really do believe this even more, like I'm still figuring out who I am in my 50s. But in your 20s, it's okay if you don't know yet. I mean, I don't think you should sit on the couch and watch TV all day, but I do think that you have to have a lot of experiences in order to know who you want to be and what you want to do. And so have those experiences and allow yourself to have those experiences. And that's cool while you're figuring it all out. Some people don't come to it until their 30s or 40s, and that's okay. The other thing I would say is be kind. It really is important, especially now. Coming out of you know COVID, the way our nation is so divided, it doesn't cost anything more. And I tell my clients this because they're going through a difficult time. But we, I tell my kids this too when they started school this week: be kind. It will make you feel better. I do believe it's good karmically. Whatever's up there, making whatever all happens happen. But also for yourself, I'm sure everybody can relate to a day where they've said something shitty to somebody or whatever, and they get home later and they don't feel good. Do something nice. Say something nice. Smile. Be kind. I, coming from a divorce lawyer, it might be ironic, but maybe it's just the most important thing ever. And that is what I would say. And if you can keep that with you through your 20s and into the following years, you're probably going to be okay. Oh, I love that. That's my one-liner. When people ask oh, me I'm for sorry. my advice, you took it. You took it out of my head. No, I also say be kind. Like it's okay to be firm and direct sometimes if you need to be, but you can always be kind. And I think that it it goes such a long way. People want to help kind people. And like, especially in career, I've seen that over and over again. I don't like helping not kind people. And I really like helping kind people. Yeah. Awesome. Can you tell everyone where they can follow you on socials, where they can learn about all the things, the podcasts, the books, all the things? So definitely come on to divorce.com. My personal Insta is Laura Wasser Official. I think there's a Laura Wasser website somewhere. The firm is called Wasser Cooperman and Mandels. And those are the most kind of socials that I have. But the book is called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way. And I kind of took a look at it the other day, you know, nine years later. It still makes sense. It still works. It's, it holds up. But really, I mean, you know, reach out. I'm interested to hear what people have to say. I cannot believe that I've been doing this for over 25 years. So some of your listeners like weren't even born yet when I started practicing. I'm trying to just cling to the relevance that I have. But but I do. I think it, I finally have hit a point in my life where I think I know what I'm talking about. So hopefully somebody takes a grain of this away and is interested in hearing it and then helps someone. I appreciate it. Well, I certainly, if nothing else, listen, I at least learned a lot. <laughs> Good. At least me. 
even if nobody else finds this valuable. No, but thank you so much for being here. It was so great to chat with you. And I just so appreciate your energy and your openness. And this was super fun. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.